Hello and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. Please, if you like what you hear, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Today it is Thursday, May 5th. I have with me Nicholas and Benjamin. Hello. Howdy. And also special guest Trevor, who I've met here in New York. How are you, Trevor? Pretty good, my man. So Trevor's, to explain a little bit of his background, he was political science and philosophy, then served in the military for eight years, was actually going to join the Peace Corps in Ukraine before ending up in New York, where I met him in typical New Orleans fashion at a bar. Trevor, how have you been doing? Yeah, you know, just taking it day by day. We're really trying to keep the head on straight with, uh, you know, the best amount of things going on in the world. <laughs> Truth. So we haven't had Nick on in a couple of weeks. Give us Ukraine updates and a lot has happened. So to give my little spiel at the beginning, from what I see going on in the last couple of weeks, things have shifted to a more offensive mode. The U.S. is pledging more money, offensive money. This siege of Mariupol is like becoming more and more dire, forcing our government's hand, it seems like. And they're also committing pledges to degrade the Russian military outside of just this conflict. So I guess to open it up first, Nick, how do you feel about the changes? Do you see this shifting into a new mode? And also just when they say they're going to be sending in different types of weaponry, what does that mean? Like, what is the change in weaponry we're sending? So we're sending, uh, you know, this was the initial weapon supply were sort of smaller arms, smaller caliber weaponry. So Trevor, probably very familiar with like javelins and they're now famous anti-tank missiles. We're sending them now M777s, which are frontline current U.S. Army artillery, like cannons. These are what the U.S. Army, the Canadians, the British use currently. Fielded maybe about 10 years ago, replaced the M198. So anyone in the artillery world would know this, but like we're shipping them stuff that we currently use. Uh, And we use the Javelin, but these are long range fires. So you could shoot this at a a much longer distance, longer range to, to hit Russian uh, Russian forces and, and and sort of break these sort of siege type situations around Kharkiv and Mariupol, etc. But the the definitely the the front right now is is in eastern Ukraine. The the Kiev front I think was repulsed completely. The Russians completely pulled back, and so now you're looking at northeastern to fully southeastern front of the of Ukraine. So Donbas, Lushansk, these sort of whole oblasts in, in, in Ukraine. So that the in Mariupol looks pretty dire. There's a there's a contingent of about two thousand Ukrainian Marines that are held up in these like underground tunnels at this Azovstal steel plant, which I think was built these tunnels were built to withstand a nuclear blast. So they're pretty fortified in there and they managed to repulse a Russian attacking force that did penetrate their perimeter. Uh, that being said, I mean, again, there's the current conditions on the ground are changing quite frequently, pretty dynamic. But right now, it looks like they're they're still encircled and still in this kind of siege mode. Um, so hopefully these new weapon systems could do a lot. You know, the New York Times reported on, I believe, to be a very kind of dangerous leak that the U.S. intelligence community is assisting Ukraine in targeting Russian generals. You know, I think that's pretty obvious. It just didn't need to be stated fully. Now that it's out there, it's out there. But definitely we're targeting their command and control capability. And that's that's critical in the battlefield. I don't know. Yeah, Trevor, you're, you're much more, you have a lot more maneuver experience than I do. You've been on the ground in Afghanistan and seen some stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. Curious about your take on this. Uh, I mean, to be completely honest, I 
and the last few weeks I haven't been paying too much attention to like what's been going on. Um, I did hear about, you know, the uh, about Russian forces being repelled at Kiev, you know, at the capital uh, and then kind of like pulling back and fortifying I, 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 basically their positions in, in like southeastern Ukraine and northeastern Ukraine. The most of like the separatist kind of like, you know, sort of like uh, battles have like taken place so, over the last few years, basically, you know, and especially with the help of the Belarusian, uh, you know, military, it looks like they're basically trying to, at least at the moment, dig in their heels a little bit, you know, and just kind of like keep hold of territory they've already gathered, you know? It seems like they're almost trying to build themselves an out where they can like declare, they can have something concrete that they say was an outcome, right? If they managed to carve out a chunk of the Donbass region. And the last couple of weeks, I thought I read an article. I, mean, um, I could be wrong. I could have misread. Wasn't there um, the Belarusian president sort of a uh, support the idea or something about um, the territory of like Ukraine um, being able to separate from Ukraine and then by law legally, you know what I'm saying, like, uh, you know, take on military aid and support by like Russia and Belarus. Uh, so by doing so basically gives them, quote unquote, a legitimate, you know, or legal standing to have, you know, Russian forces, you know what I'm saying, in the territory. I may be explaining that completely off, but it's something that like caught my attention a couple of weeks ago. You know so, what he's talking about, Nick? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the news out of Belarus right now is that Lukashenko's actually walked back. It's not static at all. It just changes quite frequently. Yeah. But it, I guess it, it, it uh, he, he sort of acknowledged that the, the special military operations, Putin calls it, has not gone to plan. I mean, he, he's in an interesting position because I think he, you know, years ago, this must have been six years ago, he had a falling out with Putin and made some outreach to the West, which was kind of coldly received given his human rights track record <laughs> um, as, as, you know, he's viewed as Europe's last totalitarian dictator. And obviously that's a more, and he's joined by Putin now, but. Uh, and Orban. Yeah. So wait. Or, yeah. So it, it's sort of this, um, you know, he's he's now, I believe, in, in, in Putin's camp, but he does have a track record of distancing himself at times. So it'd be interesting. I think at time will tell whether or not uh, whether or not his regime is, is stable or whether or not he, he completely is, is completely just absorbed into the Russian sphere of influence, which he appears to be right now. Mm-hmm. I um, going going back to the current military situation on the ground. I do think what we're giving them now, we've definitely increased. And the Germans uh, have increased a lot of offensive weaponry. They're giving them surplus anti-aircraft vehicles. They kind of look like little tanks with two guns on the side that have that kind of move around on a turret. And they're just sort of increasing the Ukrainian military's capability. And obviously the Russians, they're on their border. So that means that their supply lines aren't a stretch. They don't have to do these extensive logistical operations, which they've been proven to be very ineffective at, which makes the Ukrainians fight to retake this a little bit more difficult. That being said, morale is low. By conservative estimates, the Russians have suffered around 25,000 KIA killed in action, plus wounded, which is probably double that number. So wow. that's a crippling, crippling number. So wait, um, let me broaden this. Easily... Wait, I just want to broaden this for a second. So yeah. over the last two months there has been a gradual shift in the entire war from like oh we're just providing you know defense aid or regular aid civilian aid to this and and trying to skirt this line around is this an attack on nato should nato and then now there is all these goals that extend way beyond ukraine that we want to degrade the russian military that we want to potentially oust putin right biden said like two weeks ago that he wants putin to be done 
I read an interesting article by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times the other day about how this is classic mission creep. So I guess well, I, I would like to ask Trevor, like, especially when you look back out at Afghanistan, that we went in with a specific goal and then over time it morphed into something that we can no longer control because it seemed like we didn't even know what we were trying to accomplish there. From my perspective, there's fear of the same thing happening here where we start with one parameter, we shift it to another parameter. Now you've got Putin declaring that there is a Donetsk People's Republic. It's pretty obvious they're going to try to partition yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. The, the, uh, so, uh, excuse me. That's what I was trying to like, get. To. I didn't remember the name of it. The, the, the DPR. Yeah, DPR, yeah. You know, like, like, so, like, they were trying to basically formulate their own state. And if they were seen as legitimized as a state, then they can, right. you know, welcome in, you know, saying Russian troops into their territory. Yeah, they're, they're like issuing but, their own passports so, and stuff so, now. So, so then technically it's not an invasion, you know what I'm saying? It's a legal matter of one country allowing in the troops of another. So so, so then it changes the actual language of what's taking place. It seems like the Biden administration has walked a very delicate line up until now. And now they're getting in this very dangerous gray zone where like, from the beginning, I wish the Biden administration had sent in more military troops to handle Ukraine directly. Now it seems like the the mm -hmm. scope of the war is broadening. No, I, I well, I mean, it, this comes from sort of this analysis paralysis culture in certain foreign policy circles where you, you do have to take risks if you want to achieve the goals that you seek. So the Luchance People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic, these aren't new. These are sort of entities that existed after 2014. And the, I'm sure the Russians, I believe, are recognizing them as sovereign nations. And this, just as what they did in Georgia with South Ossetia and Abkhazia and how they recognize Transnistria and Moldova, which is another breakaway province in Moldova, they, they do this. This is sort of their M.O., now, that being said, sure, they can issue Russian passports, they can subsidize these regions, but there are economic liabilities to, to the country. I mean, there's really no economic activity in, in most of these regions. So it's it's just almost it's a tool that they use to keep these sort of frozen conflicts going. And that prevents Ukraine from fully integrating into the EU or NATO or any other international organization. It's, it's a Russian tool of colonialism, of keeping them in their sphere of influence. And as for the Biden administration's goals in, in Russia, and I know the Secretary of Defense said his goal is to weaken the Russian military. I mean, it's sort of stating the obvious, right? Let's say that the Ukrainians had not received any foreign assistance. They probably would have folded. I mean, they, they would have they would have fought hard. They would have resisted, but they didn't have the tools necessary to defeat the second uh, or first largest land army on the, on the planet without foreign assistance and without U.S. training, without. Yeah, but you just like you just said about assisting the military with assassinating generals. Why would you state something like that? I believe think I agree with you. That is a harmful leak. That being said, I think the Russians know that we're giving them intelligence. I think they're fully aware of it. It's sort of this every side knows they just don't want to acknowledge it. It's, it's this weird sort of diplomatic game of plausible deniability. So, it, but, so it's more of a proxy sort of situation here. Yeah, it is. And and they know it. We know it. Everyone knows it. All though, you know, like their actual military. So like, you know, you know, you know, back in the Cold War era, you know, the, the U.S. and Russia fought these proxy wars, you know, to be able to have that plausible deniability to spread either communism or capitalism or democracy, let's say. But in this scenario, it, one organization and the U.S. funding another organization. Now we're actually 
directly funding an organization and fighting the Russian military. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it, it, certainly true, and it is an escalation. Right. But my, my counterpoint to those that think that we should de-escalate right now is to say that if, if we had not done this, if we had not started to train the Ukrainians going back, you know, in the last decade, I think that the Russians would have kept going. They would have done Moldova. Yeah. They would have I'm not saying we should de-escalate. We should just have more Estonia. specific goals. Well, no, no, no. Like- and, and, well, I think also to address that point, Seth, first off, in order to understand combat, war, you know, any sort of situation like that, you have to realize that goals will always change as as the situation changes, as new things take place. You know what I'm saying? Not everything is predictable. You can go in with one mission in mind, you know, one goal in mind. But as these chess pieces are moved, you have to, you know, one of the first things they teach you in basic training is to be adaptable. You know, the military that is the most adaptable, most fluid, most able to change its direction, the quickest is usually the one that's going to be most successful in, in its campaign. Yeah, oh, and definitely. Has a plan and I, yeah, improvise, adapt, face, and overcome. Exactly, exactly. I mean, improvise, adapt, and overcome, you know. And I think a big difference between this situation with Russia and Ukraine versus, let's say, the Middle East situation is we never really had a clear mission of what we were doing spreading democracy you know we're going to get osama bin laden took eight years to get him then you know we got him and it took another 10 years to actually get out of the region you know like there was no real clear mission we were just kind of present they were there at least with this we have consistent sort of like ideas about what we can do to like cut off russia's advance and at least push them back. Mm. From our conversation the other night, oil is becoming a larger and larger player in all of this, right? Because the the Germans are refusing to stop selling or stop buying Russian oil. The Europeans are trying to start an embargo of their oil. There's like all this talk of oil companies now making, like Shell just released it made $9 billion over the last quarter. So there's like this shift in where the power of who holds the oil I just don't even, it's so convoluted to me. And there's so many different, you know, you've got OPEC over here, you've got the Germans, you've got Americans trying to, with the natural gas, trying to pump more. Maybe you, this is a, a topic for another episode, but it's hard for me to even wrap my head around where oil prices play into this and how. What, 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 so it's not necessarily about, like, I'll try and be real quick. It's not necessarily about, I mean, take whatever I have to say, you know, with, you know, with a grain of salt, I'm no expert on the matter. In my opinion, it's it's not about the pricing of oil. It's more about what oil is being fixed to. You know, what I'm saying like, you know, as far as which currency oil sales are being fixed to, because mm. that, that, that creates an artificial demand for that currency. You know, what I'm saying so. That's like the entire point of like the petrodollar before the U.S. and the Saudi family, you know, and OPEC formed their relationship. The U.S. dollar had just separated from the gold standard, which basically left us as a fiat currency that had value only because we were the American government and we said it had value. At least by signing to the selling and buying of oil, there mm. created a actual concrete value and need and necessity of the U.S. dollar on a global scale. You know, and so so you have Russia, you have China, you. Of India, you know, what I'm saying trying to actually deviate from the petrodollar and create the fucking petro yuan or the petro ruble, and those will help their economies, but in the long run, will only serve to hurt the U.S. economy because once people stop needing U.S. dollars to buy and sell oil, then all of the U.S. dollars get flooded back to the U.S. because there's no need of it, and then we, but then we are left with hyperinflation because our actual value. Interesting. Is, I mean, is, I never thought of that as an avenue for how this could shake out because you're already hearing about sort of 
not just in terms of oil, but even just financial markets trying to shift to different currencies or to the yuan or whatever. And so mm-hmm. if that happens, the idea of hyperinflation shooting back to us because oil is now attached in a more secure way to another currency. I mean, that's a pretty scary scenario. Seems a little bit unlikely because of our military dominance, but in five or 10 years, who knows? I mean, that's the whole point of speculation, right? You know, like all we can talk about is the possibilities, whether good or bad. We don't know, you know what I'm saying? No one knows for sure, but it doesn't make for an easy situation. Nick, pick well, up just where one, you left One more up. point about Putin and, and this whole like regime change. You know, Tucker was ranting about regime change in Russia and revenge for the 2016 disinformation campaign or whatever. I think most folks do not want Vladimir Putin's regime to thrive, right? I mean, that's common sense. I also think that his MO to stay in power is this sort of expansionist foreign policy to sort of keep people distracted about any domestic internal issue. So he's, you know, going to launch these these wars abroad. And, and this whole notion that it's like NATO's fault, I mean, he's expanded in places where NATO has no presence. Syria, Central African Republic, Libya, Mali, he has his proxies in these regions too. I mean, so th- this is just garbage that it's a garbage argument to say that this is because of NATO expansion. I think that's been debunked left and right. But from the fact that we view the Putin regime and what the our objectives are in Ukraine, I mean, quite frankly... Yes, that would be great if Putin were to fall, if his regime were to collapse. I think, is it should it be U.S. objective? I mean, if our objective is to prevent a rogue regime from violating the sovereignty of neighbors in Europe, yeah, that's a good start to have that as an objective is to remove the problem. The problem is Vladimir Putin. The problem is not Ukraine. The problem is not the Moldovan government. The problem is not the Georgian government. The problem is the Vladimir Putin's regime. It's a criminal regime that's imprisoned internal dissent. It's murdered dissidents. It has no regard for human rights. It is a thuggish regime built on criminality and corruption. And so, yes, I I think we should unabashedly say the objective is this, is to weaken the Russian government. Now, we can say that, and then that could be an objective, whether or not we promote it for certain strategic reasons, you know, to, to make sure that's not used in, in Russia for certain domestic purposes to galvanize support for the war, that's that's fair. That's a fair argument to have. And I think it's worthy of a debate. But if we just shy away from that as an objective, I think that's foolish. I think the objective is to, to weaken Putin and to certainly seek the downfall of his regime. I think it would benefit Russia. Almost done with my rant. But I, I think this heard recently that uh, there's some podcast uh armchair expert with Dak Shepard interviewed someone, an anthropologist about Lol. or social social scientist about sort of Russian culture. And, you know, in Russia, they had uh, a knockoff of who wants to be a millionaire. And when there's a feature in the show where you can get to ask the audience for help on an answer, the audience would deliberately give the, the contestant the wrong answer, which I found to be very funny, humorous. But it, it sort of reminds me of that old proverb I used to say that I read in this book about this like Russian mentality of a zero sum. Yeah, poking thinking. people's eyes out. Uh, and and it, 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 this is how they view foreign policy and how they view their neighbors. Like if Ukraine is successful, that means Russia is suffering. That's the way they think it. They think about that. They don't think about how if Ukraine is successful as a country economically, that's a bigger market for Russian goods. That helps Russia. It's mutually beneficial. They don't the, the sort of Vladimir Putin way of thinking is incredibly reactionary. And I think 
would do Russia good to have someone new at the helm who believes in democratic values and human rights and free market principles? Is there any um, is there any intel on like the succession plan after Putin? Like how much of this is just down to him? Because I know that there have been rumors circulating for a while now that he has Parkinson's and there was a video that came out of some meeting that he was having and you can just see him. It's like a 12 minute video and he's just clutching the side of the table. And that would seem to be a way to avoid displaying tremors that would be typical of Parkinson's. If if he just croaks, to what extent is this going to continue? Nick? Is that for me? No, I no. think it won't continue <laughs> yeah, well, at all. I mean, so there's there's some thoughts about the current head of the, what Siloviki is a, the Russian term for his sort of inner circle of intelligence people. I have a head of the SVR, the FSB, I forgot one, but it's some thug, some other criminal thug who has been sort of floated around as a possibility. But again, I mean, this isn't I don't think he should be given the right to appoint a successor if he decides to resign or something. I think it really I mean. They've had free and fair elections in the 90s with Boris Yeltsin, and even even Putin, to a certain degree, early on was elected. You know, that being said, I think he's rigged pretty much every other election since. But it is uh, Russia, for its own sake, would would benefit from having a non KGB security intelligence official as the head of the country. I think there's potential culturally. It's a dynamic country. I mean, it, it, they have scientists. They have ingenuity. But it's all been got my earbud fell out. It's all been stifled by this regime. So really, it just I don't see it as it can get worse after Putin. I can only see it getting better. I mean, this is like the same school of thought that said, "Oh my God, you know, we shouldn't intervene against ISIS because we could replace it with something worse, or we could accidentally some other force would take over and make it worse." Which I think is kind of a ludicrous argument because I think it can't get it cannot get worse from Vladimir Putin. He is an yeah, insane I, I maniac at this point. I think his he personally believes that he is Russia, that his actions are for the sake of Russia, like anything that is in his interests or for the interests of Russia, which clearly is insane to think he's a megalomaniac to think that. One other thing that just came to mind, you read about how Brittany Griner's status was changed by the U.S. government. Does that make it more likely for there to be a hostage swap like what just happened with that Marine? Yeah. So they got Trevor Reed out. There is another guy named Whelan, Whelan who is a former military veteran as well. I mean, I think that her case, you know, it's clearly you know, something that under in a normal country would have just been a fine or ticket or, you know, been detained for 48 hours and deported or something. Uh, I mean, there, she's definitely, I'd view her as a hostage. I think that it certainly elevates it from an internal U.S. government perspective. I think what's most likely to happen is that they would trade her for someone that we recently detained, like Elena Bronner was some Russian woman who was in New York conducting disinformation and was sort of affiliated with the Russian SVR and donating to certain friendly U.S. politicians who were naive or idiotic, like Tulsi Gabbard. But I think there's, there's certainly possibilities to, for a trade or something like that down the road. I mean, we traded... Trevor Reed, they traded Trevor Reed for a Russian pilot who was uh, arrested and convicted for smuggling tons of cocaine into the U.S. So, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, I do hope she's released quite quickly. I think we do have leverage over the Russians when it comes to this sort of hostage situation, although we arrest people for committing crimes. They arrest people for random pettiness. 
random things that are seemingly most likely concocted. All right, let's jump further into sports with the craziest Champions League semifinal I've ever seen in my life. What did what were your thoughts on that game, Ben? Uh, it was kind of a shit game for until City scored. Yeah, the um, whole first half was awful. Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, I think like was the save that Ederson made to deny. Rodrigo is hat trick in entry time. I think that was his first save of the match. Yeah, that's Pretty easy. true. Because they had um, no shots on goal before that. Yeah, no, it's insane that like Madrid could have potentially had a Rodrigo hat trick within three and a half minutes. That, yeah, I, I absolutely did not see that coming, um, especially given the chances that City had. But uh, So do you see it more as this is the, the lore of Madrid growing, or this is Pep's fuck-up? I don't think Pep did too much wrong. I know I texted you that he was a bald fraud, but I don't think that he <laughs> did too much that was wrong. I think KDB plays sort of an interesting dual role in this system, where essentially defensively, Man City are in a 4-4-2, and KDB is is up there along with one of the strikers. And then attacking-wise, they're in 2-3-5 and KDB's in the inside right channel as per usual. But like, I, I understand taking him off to basically get the extra body in midfield because I think Camavinga when he came on, and it's crazy that dude is 19. Um, yeah, he looked great. So much more dynamism in midfield. And that was what was, I think, allowing Madrid to come back into the game a little bit because, you know, for as great as Modric and Kroos and Casemiro all are, um, they're not the luckiest of players. Yeah, at this Cruz point looked careers. really slow the whole yeah, game. No, he just, Camavinga like, for Cruz. Present. He gave Madrid a whole other element in midfield, and I think that's more than anything is why KDB came off. Which, you know, I think it's a perfectly acceptable sub, and if Jack Grealish didn't suck ass, then this isn't even a, this isn't even a story. I really think Madrid's going to win the final. I just don't see them losing to Liverpool, because I think, I don't know, I just feel like the... Uh, uh, like the magic is with them on one level, and then I also think like they have Liverpool's number. I feel like the the final the that they lost whatever it was five years ago, as opposed to this being a revenge game, that's actually going to play in the mind of Liverpool and make them more cautious and and put Madrid on the front foot. Think that they can get at them. Could be. I do think the Vinicius versus Trent matchup is a killer for Liverpool to try and deal with because Trent is Trent's like defensive struggles are overstated in my opinion. Like he's a reasonable team defender, but like he's awful one on one. Biggest weakness awful. is one we want exactly. So because like, he can't turn around, he's like really bad at turning 180 degrees. If you watch, yeah, no, 100. percent He doesn't have great foot speed. Like that's that's kind of the, that's like the NBA analogy. So like if you remember the first leg against Chelsea or in the Madrid Chelsea tie where Vinicius was just completely cooking Christensen and like creating, you know, Madrid could have been four nil up in the first half of that game. Like I could see something similar happening if Liverpool let it, but Klopp is too smart to let that individual matchup dictate the game. But I do think the Brieger point is that I just think there are ways that Madrid can get at Liverpool. So we'll see. I, you know, I think it'd be fascinating. I do think that Liverpool have a pretty strong sense of injustice given that like it was yeah, basically Carius fucking up and Mo Salah getting taken out and Carius was was concussed and that was a big part of his performance. Oh, right. Yeah. So I, I think that there's there's bulletin board material on both sides, but I don't you know I don't also don't think Ancelotti needs that like Ancelotti's just yeah you know, also a very smart dude. manager. Yeah. Um. All right. So what about the NBA? Do you think the main thing in the NBA right now is the Suns and um, Heat just totally dominating their matchups? Do you think those series are like 
competitive or you think those are going to be sweeps? I think the Heat are going to sweep the Sixers, especially if Embiid is not back. And yeah, that's like, so unfortunate the... that that should happen I to know. Embiid. Yeah, well, it's also fucking stupid for him to be in in a 30-point game um, with three minutes left. Like, that's just all Doc Rivers being a fucking moron, as per usual. Like, it's crazy that he was still in the game. What what the fuck are you doing? It's also, um, yeah, crazy as orbital bone was broken. That's like the, one of the hardest bones to break in your body because it's a circular bone. It's the second bone. time he's done it. It's the second time crazy. he's broken his orbital. So, yeah. What do you think of the Boston matchup? That seems like the one series that'll maybe go to seven games and just be Mm -hmm. one of these epic series. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I think it all basically hinges on how well the Celtics shoot threes because the Bucks' defensive philosophy forever has been just pack the paint. They always give up a ton of threes. And if the Celtics can hit their open threes, then I think the Celtics will win, basically. I think it almost entirely comes down to that. I think the, the interesting wrinkle between game one and game two is Boston was just like, taking threes at the first opportunity and then in game two they did a lot more drive and kick and then move the ball around to get like really really open looks and i think in part due to that they made a lot more of them and then the other big thing is like this is kind of synergistic because the bucks are the best transition team in the league so if the celtics are making all their open threes then uh then it also hurts the the bucks offense and capability and capacity to score so like i think it just basically comes down to can the celtics role players hit, yeah, hit their shots five to 40 percent of their threes all right and then finally give us a, a f1 update or a preview yeah well uh, i wasn't on last week unfortunately but there was a crazy race well i guess it wasn't like a crazy race but it was a very very good weekend for red bull in italy where they basically got the max they got almost completely maximum points they only lost one point possible so all of a sudden they're completely back in uh back in the constructors race and they're like 13 points back in the constructors championship and Verstappen is like essentially within one race where he wins it and Leclerc doesn't win it so we'll see so this weekend is the Miami Grand Prix which is the the first one ever uh it looks very very exciting it's a very interesting track where there's going to be sections where Red Bull have an advantage and there's going to be sections where Ferrari have an advantage because again the Ferrari seems to be better in corners and especially high speed corners and the Red Bull is faster on straights so this uh it seems like a very well-designed track that was like made with modern f1 cars in mind so a lot of like the older tracks the cars that have been used for 50 years they were designed for much smaller cars so like monaco is the is the kind of crown jewel if you watch drive to survive of f1 but it's also the shittiest race of the year because no one can pass anyone in big modern heavy f1 cars so miami seems like it's going to be very fascinating uh and it seems like it's it's a well-designed track so very excited for that and so the other last question on this is that so it seems like mercedes is just screwed for the rest of the season but then mclaren has done something to their engines or build or whatever that has made them so much faster what what the hell happened there so mercedes it, it seems like mercedes took the complete the wrong design philosophy so what mercedes tried to do was make their car as skinny as possible so if you look at like the side of an f1 car they have what are called side pods and those are big air intakes that are essentially designed to channel air in certain ways because you want air channeled away from the front tires outside of the the body of the car you don't want that interfering with uh with the back tires and they also help cool the engine so Mercedes' big thing was they designed the skinniest car possible with, they call it the no side pod design almost. I think that's their their official moniker for it. And it seems like what they didn't account for was that this is going to completely fuck up the way the porpoising works. So the porpoising is, again, bouncing up and down. So 
their biggest issue right now is they cannot run the car low enough to the track because if they do, then it just like sticks to the floor and it bounces uncontrollably. So they have to lift the ride height and this makes their downforce worse and it also increases the drag on the car so their top speed is badly affected. McLaren has like had normal side pods and it seems like they've figured out how to control this bouncing which makes the Mercedes more or less undrivable and it doesn't matter how good their engine is if they have to ride a very high drag setup they can't they can't go fast in the corners at all because they can't break the car in time. So right, they've, then... they've actually come out and said like if they if They've, they've tried to do some upgrades for Miami, and if they don't work, then it seems like they might scrap the entire design. Are you allowed just, to do that? Just redesign the car mid-season? You can to some extent. It, like The new thing now is there's a cost cap, so you can't just throw unlimited resources at problems like this. But they have alternate builds. So like the first car that they designed a preseason testing and released, because they kind of have to build these things in stages, the first one had side pods. And then it was only at the second test that they revealed this new concept. So they have some base to work with. Got it. Okay, so last note on this episode for our listeners that can't see this. Ben has a burgeoning mustache. What what inspired this decision? <laughs> it's mostly to horrify my parents. I, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Are you going to let it grow like really long so you can grow no, it? No, I, I can't even grow that, that long. This is about as much as I can tolerate, so... <laughs> Episode. Please tune in next week. Stay safe and talk to you then.